I urge colleagues to see the forest through the trees and that the perfect is not the enemy of the good. Just as my parent, the trees my parents' generation planted created the canopy we enjoy today, trees planted today can and will create the canopy we need for my children. Well, that is an embattled council member, Dan Strauss, finally reaching the finish line on a measure he sponsored to protect trees in Seattle. What impact will that legislation truly have? And who on the Seattle City Council is not supporting it? Plus, a new report on Seattle Police Department staffing showing some changes when it comes to officers staying or leaving. And also, what's next for the King County Regional Homelessness Authority? And are Amazon workers about to walk off the job? Well, we've got some big questions and hopefully a couple answers this week on Seattle News, Views and Brews, your Coffee Break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are my own. And I am joined once again by my co-host, David Croman, reporter for the Seattle Times. David, you're, you're out on the streets today. You are covering the beat, my man. What, uh, what's it like uh, being out of the house and chasing after things from street level? <laughs> yeah, well, it's not entirely by choice. This is uh, <laughs> what it takes to get car maintenance while having a small child and a job. Is Sometimes you work from uh, Wendy's bench. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Even his bench play is solid. I love it, David. Thank you, as always, for making this happen with me. And also, thank you to our background noise sponsor, City Grind Espresso, on the first floor of City Hall. Thanks also to our show patrons. The Seattle News Views and Brews sticker campaign is up and rolling, and we definitely need your help. I wanted to say thanks to Britt for her recent pledge and interacting with the show. The rest of you listeners, why can't you be more like your sister, Britt? Come on, join the show as a patron. You get your very own decal for just $5 a month. We feature action photos of your sticker on the show, too. And patrons, if you have some photos out there, send a few in, why don't you? Email seattlenewsfusionbrews at gmail.com. Thanks, finally, to Converge Media. We partner with Converge to air the video version of this podcast. Check it out on Converge's YouTube channel, Wednesday nights at 7. Let's get moving with Right Here, Right Now. Well, at long last, the city of Seattle has passed a tree ordinance, the final vote part of a three-hour council meeting on Tuesday. And David, we have talked about this before, but I was really struck in this meeting that what started as a partnership between Councilmember Strauss and Councilmember Peterson on this measure a few years ago ended up with a no vote from Peterson after he unsuccessfully tried to delay the implementation of this legislation. He was the only no vote. The ordinance passed 6-1. Councilmember Sawant not present. Council President Juarez not present for that vote. I guess I wanted to ask, did the council need more time on this? I mean, it's been years in the making. But Councilmember Herbold also supported this idea for a delay, but the amendment really didn't have the votes to, 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 to proceed. So here we are. Did the council need more time, David? What do you think? I mean, I, I think for, for people who are frustrated with the final result of, of a piece of legislation, saying that it needs more time is often what they say. And, you know, clearly yeah. Councilmember Peter Penn and to a certain extent, Councilmember Herbold are frustrated with the end result here. They wanted to see kind of, uh, I, I would say, perhaps more stringent uh, tree protections uh, but you know the, the reality is if, if you're working on something for as long as the city council has worked on this at a certain point you've kind of gone down every avenue you can and uh, clearly the most of the council almost all of them except for Alex Peterson felt satisfied enough with this to, to finally kind of put it to rest yeah yeah and I guess I should point out what the bill does here folks generally it protects a lot more trees somewhere between 
88,000 and 175,000 trees, way up from the 17,000 plus protected under the current code. There are more protections for trees 24 inches wide and trees 12 inches wide have to be replaced by one or more new trees or you can pay into a fund for tree restoration. There's also a limitation on how many trees you can cut on your own property that's been reduced to now two under a foot wide every three years. But David, in looking at this, the piece I'm most interested is uh, most interested in is this: Is this measure going to have the impact the city wants? More tree canopy, specifically in the areas of the city that need it the most, these low-income neighborhoods. How does the city really guide this policy going forward? Because I, I don't think they're really done with this policy even after the vote. No, I mean that's always a question with every piece of legislation: is you can be perfectly happy with the end result of the language, but you don't have an enforcement mechanism or an oversight mechanism, it's hard to know what effect it'll really have. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't know how many tree cops are out there on the road um, uh, making sure that this is followed. Um, yeah, I mean, it's thorny, right? Because, um, uh, you know, on the one hand, the, the question of kind of heat deserts or uh, yes. areas of the city that are particularly vulnerable to high temperatures of course there's a big equity aspect there there are fewer trees in south seattle more concrete um you know i think a lot of that has to do with the road design which is those are also the areas with big arterials um uh, you know and uh you know infrastructure that tends to have a lot more concrete also Mm -hmm. Uh, but on the other hand you know i mean i think this through the whole thing this tree canopy debate has also been a bit of a proxy for some of the housing density debates too, yeah. which is uh, people, who, th- th- there is some, uh, a good amount of correlation between people who are um, concerned about additional density in the city and people who care a lot about the, the tree canopy ordinance. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's always been the balancing act here. And I think that's why at the end of the day, there was always going to be frustration in people who think uh, that they should be taking more time because uh, it is in some ways a stand in for us, several larger uh, debates happening in the city. Yeah, and that, and that was the that also struck me with this, David. It wasn't nobody was really happy with this. People who wanted to preserve trees, I feel like some of the developers got a little bit more what they wanted out of this. But still, we're talking about a situation where they're going to have to pay into a fund here when they start cutting down more trees. So, over the next sixty days, folks, this is definitely something that we're going to be keeping an eye on. I know you will too, and I, I really am interested to see where the council guides this because that equity issue where these trees are placed, how they're placed. That's the devil in the details with this and a lot of details with this one for sure. I want to move on to another piece here with you here, David, a report from the Seattle Police Department this week in the Public Safety Committee on officer retention, response time, and recruiting that has a number of interesting nuggets here. A quick breakdown here, folks. Separations, meaning officers leaving the department, those are slowing down. That downward trend of losing officers appears to have bottomed out, maybe even some slight gains in the past quarter. Overtime spending, though, is way up, and response times, depends on where you live, they are decreased in the south and west precincts, but they are up in the north precinct for all types of 911 calls. And David, I want to talk about some of this before we jump into the recruiting piece. Concerns you have with these numbers, positive trends jumping out at you, what do you see? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it probably comes as a relief that that there are signs that that the the numbers have bottomed out because... um, you know, the recruitment has been swinging pretty hard lately. And, you know, I think yeah. to a certain extent they're, they have succeeded at it. The, the issue has been that they just, it has not been enough to replace the number of people yeah. leaving uh, just because those, that number has been so high. I think 
um, probably what we're seeing is some of that churn settling down a little bit, that fewer police are, um, you know, because if, if you were a Seattle police officer who was eager to get out of Seattle and, and frustrated with the direction Seattle was going, mm-hmm. um, it was probably, you were probably going to leave in the last few years. Right. If you are still, you're still a police officer, officer with the Seattle Police Department, then um, you have made peace with that and, and are okay with that, I would, I would think. Because, you know, anyone who has being a, been paying attention, I think that the t- temperature has, has come down quite a bit since 2020 mm-hmm. and 2021, both in yeah. City Hall, but also, you know, we don't see the protests or the activism that we did before. Um, right. You know, I'd be curious to know, you know, I, I think the thing about this that I think has always fallen a little short in some of the debates is, you know, Seattle gets a lot of bl- blame, but every police department has really struggled with this yeah. right now. The, you know, state patrol is desperate for patrol officers and can't find mm-hmm. them. And that's a statewide office. So you can't really put that on uh, any sort of defund the police rhetoric or mm-hmm. anything like that. Because, and, and I think that's true for a lot of departments. And so I'd be curious to know, is this, which I haven't looked into, is, is, yeah. um, is this Seattle specific or are other departments also kind of seeing a flattening? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I would suspect that uh, Seattle is sort of vulnerable or uh, subject to the same national trends that that everybody is yeah and and that's it's interesting you bring that up because this gets me to the whole recruiting piece and seattle has these recruitment bonuses that were approved by the city council last year those are definitely getting put to use and we are seeing these numbers as you say start to bottom out maybe start to rise a little bit when it comes to officers coming on the job but it was interesting to me david to look in this report and there's a quote from the spd on this one i'll lay on you The executive, that means the mayor, has been slow to spend the funding that has been appropriated for recruitment and retention. I think this one is super interesting for a few reasons. I know the council's keeping an eye on it because if dollars go unspent, they're going to work on grabbing those up and spending them elsewhere. It's a tighter budget picture they are dealing with right now. But David, it kind of sounds like the SPD would like a little more guidance from the mayor on this one if they're going to increase their numbers. Talk to me about this recruitment issue and and what sort of recruitment campaign i guess can they put out there to attract officers yeah that's that that i thought was interesting also um you know i i i have been sort of watching closely and less closely city hall for a long time and that every mayor since i can remember has talked about launching recruiting campaigns and yep um, what those look like have varied you know accepting more you know giving people more incentives of course they're signing bonus but you know, giving people more incentives who can speak multiple languages or who have done Peace Corps, you know, there's military incentives and things like that. And then, you know, basically you, we have seen around town billboards or, you know, mm-hmm. job fairs, job conventions and things like that. Um, I haven't seen a great look at, at how effective those have been or if they've been effective. Again, I just, it feels like the kind of national forces are much more powerful than um, any sort of job fair can do. Yeah. Um, that said, you know, like, like you said, anytime there's money available that's not being spent, it, it tends to uh, not sit there for very long because especially right now, you know, um, the budgets are not what they used to be in the city of Seattle and the city council has a lot of priorities. Um, so, yeah, you know, as far as what what is or isn't happening as far as recruiting, you know, I don't I don't know. I'd be curious to follow along a little bit with a recruiter and see what it is they're actually doing. Right. I've done that before, David. It's a really fascinating process because I think it's changed. I mean, going to the job fair is almost the 
the old timey way of doing it, right? I mean, there's a big social media presence piece of this. They're trying to reach out to younger people. They're trying to make sure they cast a wider net. And uh, yeah, I, I'm interested too to see first getting that money spent is the piece, but just how it gets done. And I know it's an issue that the SPD wants to focus on. So yeah, I, I, I know with Chief Diaz and his before the badge program and all the other things he's trying to do to improve the department from that very low level, the recruits that are coming in, uh, there's going to be something that the council, the mayor, everybody's going to be focusing on in the months and weeks and, to come. So, yeah, please. And in the past, you know, and in the past, and I, I don't know if this is still an issue, the city has complained a lot about a bottleneck at the academy, that they can only mm-hmm. fit so many people into an academy class. You know, the city actually has talked for years about starting their own academy. academy. Yeah. Has never happened. It would, I think, cost a lot of money and effort to stand up but you know there there have been some pushes to fund more classes at the academy so maybe they're doing great at recruiting but they just can't get people through the academy i, I don't know um, yeah it's an yeah. opportunity to look at so. true yeah the state uh, state legislature actually expanded the amount of academies that we're going to see around the state so hopefully that'll ease up the bottleneck in the coming years but those things take time to stand up so definitely good points there david thank you for bringing that up all right up next the fallout from mark doan's resigning as CEO of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. What's next for this agency? What's next for the homelessness crisis in our region? We're going to talk about it on Now Hear This. Well, just after we released last week's podcast, a real news bombshell hit. King County Regional Homelessness Authority CEO Mark Dones abruptly resigned, leaving a lot of questions behind. Now, I talked with Mark on Seattle Channel six months ago about the year ahead, which would be this year, 2023. And Mark told me during that show back in November of of last year, we'd be seeing a big reduction in homelessness in downtown Seattle this year. And they also had this to say as well. And the other thing that I think we'll talk about next year is how, again, we have restructured the system so that it's not that Frankenstein, but is coherent and makes sense and is an engine that can really be used to, to end homelessness in our region. Well, that whole idea that the RHA would be better organized this year simply has not yet come to pass. A number of agencies told the Seattle Times and other outlets that the authority fell behind on contracts, making it hard to pay employees. And then there was that multi-billion dollar budget proposal back in January for a plan to end homelessness. That really didn't sit well either. David, just a quick post-mortem here. Was Mark Doan's a bad fit for this agency in this region? or How did you read this? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think he was very frank. Um, you know, in the times I've talked to him, he's been very clear about what he thinks is necessary, and we saw that with that proposal to, to uh, raise twelve billion dollars. Um, yep. He, and uh, you know, he's also he also thinks very. At least this is my perception of him. I didn't cover him very closely, but I have talked to him a few times. My perception yeah. was he he thinks very. Uh, systemically, he talks a lot yes. about the big, larger forces that are contributing to homelessness, and um, all of which I think are are true. I, I think that the issue was he's coming into an environment in which um, things have moved very slowly, and so you know, I think perhaps um, uh, statements about what needs to be done in the large sense uh, didn't quite gain much traction over especially when they were perceived to be coming at the expense of things like getting contractors their money. Yeah. Um, the here and now. Exactly. And, and, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that, that I think was always an inherent tension and, um, you know, especially in a system that, you know, is so self emulate, you know, emulating as, as some of the, <laughs> the homelessness responses, you know, there's just a lot of 
different politics all within the mm-hmm. same space. And it's, yeah. and, you know, Mark Jones yeah. himself, I think, in kind of the introductory profile that Scott Greenstone did in the Seattle Times called it herding cats. Um, yep. yep. And, uh, so it, it was it was always going to be a very hard job um, for anybody to do. Yeah. Even if the idea of having one central authority is is appealing, um, bringing Seattle on the same page as you know Federal Way and all the the suburban cities and things like that, mm-hmm. and getting all of these various homelessness response systems into the same system, that was always going to be impossible in some yeah. ways and really really yeah. difficult. Um, and it's why that it, there was some some real opposition to starting this up even even in the first place. Um, yeah. In some ways, those chickens are coming home to roost a little bit. I'd be curious yeah. to see see who the next person is. If if it's somebody who maybe is a little less idealistic, and I I don't mean that in a negative way, idealistic, but no. um, somebody who maybe talks a little bit less about sort of the Reagan era disinvestment of public housing and more about who is the accountant who's going to write the checks, you know, things yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, and what are we going to do tomorrow rather than? Uh, these larger, uh, larger scale plans. And, and you're kind of leading in the direction I want to go, David, with where do we go from here? And I will point this out. The RHA has made some accomplishments in terms of using federal housing vouchers to get people in national attention surrounding that. There have been some other efforts going on between neighboring cities like Bellevue that have received some recognition from the RHA. So it's not like no work has been going on here. And I should point out, this was a little bit under the radar last week, but the RHA implementation board approved a new five-year plan that operates within the budget they have, $253 million in 2023. And then there's a proposed budget of fewer dollars, as it turns out, $250 million for the next year. The governing committee will vote on this June 1st, so something to keep an eye on over the next week here. And I guess that's my big question here, David. Does the KCRHA live on? I know your colleague Denny Westney brought up, maybe it's time to dismantle it. What needs to happen? Do we need this structure going forward? Well, I mean, um, I, I remember, I think it was 2016, there was this big report, that the, the Barb Poppy report that everyone yep, yep, yep. So, uh, mm-hmm. anticipated so much. And, it, you know, what the, the major conclusion of that report was there needs to be more a more centralized structure because you've got Seattle, you've got King County, you've got all the, the, the individual cities, you've got the United Way, um, you know, so, and then there's, you know, private philanthropy. So there's so many different avenues and each homeless provider is, you know, filling out grant applications, different grant applications for each. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I don't know that you'd find a lot of appetite for, you know, doubling down on that system. Um, mm-hmm. That said, you know, centralizing and consolidation is just a really difficult thing to do in government. Um, yeah. You know, I will say that, I, you know, there, there's also probably a, a an impatient aspect to this too which is that housing and building housing and and getting people into homes is a really slow process you know so um it's it's possible too that just like mark downs is a victim of uh people wanting to see things happen in on a timeline that's just yeah not all that really realistic you know if you it it takes many many years to permit and um, fund some of this affordable housing so you know um I, I, I don't think it was so much work and so much money went into setting this thing up. I'd be surprised if anyone was quite ready to pull the plug. But um, the fact that, <laughs> yeah. the, that the topic has come up um, already uh, just a few years is notable and probably something that's if it's on the mind of Danny West, 
probably on the mind of some people in, in city halls around King County. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely some pushback on that idea by the Metro Chamber of Commerce, some of the business heads who really put a lot of effort and their own uh, dollars into the RHA as well. So I know there's some tension there uh, between those different groups and the cities involved too. But uh, yeah, we're going to see what happens with that vote coming up from the governing committee on June 1st for the RHA that'll really provide some guidance as to where that agency is going in the years ahead. I, I wanted to talk about another interesting story over this past week hearing about a possible walkout of Amazon workers, David, on May 31st. And we've talked about this on the podcast. Amazon employees ordered back on the job for at least three days a week. Back on May 1st, that started happening. Now, as we've seen reported in the Washington Post, the Seattle Times, and other outlets too, there is a walkout plan. Due to frustrations over that return to the office order, the layoffs, and what some workers call a lack of action from Amazon to deal with climate change. I'm just going to be really interested, David, to see who's involved in this walkout and what sort of organization will be involved with this besides the employees for climate justice, because they've been in this mix for a little while. I've just read a lot about anonymous voices in these news accounts. What do you make of this story? Who's going to get involved in this walkout, David? What do you think? Um, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I make a few things of the story. I mean, one, there's always this kind of inherent tension between Amazon and and its workers, I think, because Amazon is in a very progressive city and several, you know, they, they set up shops in cosmopolitan cities. And so their workforce, which is highly educated and um, is going to lean more liberal. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's going to always be a little bit of tension there between some of its, uh, you know, left-leaning tech workforce and, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of the goals of the larger company. Uh, you know, I also think I, if I'm a if I'm a union organizer, I'm probably salivating a little bit at this. Um, you know, it's not it's not organizing the warehouses, which is kind of its own animal. But you know, I, I, seeing collective action um, yeah. from Amazon wow. workers, I'm sure, is something that uh, you know, they're, they're, Amazon is sort of the white whale of union organizing, and mm-hmm. so any sort of chance to find uh, activist-minded employees in one place is probably um, red meat for union organ organizers. Um, but also I, you know, I think more broadly, you know, a couple of years ago, all of the leverage was in the hands of the workers themselves because right. the demand was so high. All these companies were hiring so much. And that's why I think it took so long for these return to work policies to ever sit, you know, take mm-hmm. place because, uh, people could feel so confident that they could quit a job and go somewhere else that the companies right. were terrified to impose any of these rules. That leverage is largely gone now because all the companies have been doing layoffs. And uh, so, you know, the, I think the return to work policy is a show of confidence that Amazon is going to be able to do this without losing very many workers. And I think there's probably some acknowledgement from the workers that that's true. But um, so these walkouts are, are in some ways, you know, it's like a union action. It's it's a way to try and regain a little bit of leverage that the workers have lost. I don't know that it's going to come anywhere close to making up for that loss of leverage. But, you know, yeah. that is the kind of goal of collective action is to, to gain that leverage and to be a show of force. How many people show up and actually do it, I think, will be key as to whether yeah. it's something that Amazon is actually need to, Amazon actually needs to pay attention to and be worried about. Yeah, it, it was. It's. I'm glad you brought up that, po- that point about who shows up because... There was a response to this return to office mandate earlier this year. More than 20,000 workers signed on a petition urging Amazon to reconsider that. But in looking at all the different uh, 
different pieces that you were bringing up there, David. I'm not sure if we're, if we're going to see 20,000 people down there by the Globes. That would be really something. But, uh, yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. Around the Globes, May 31st, we'll see what that walkout looks like. All right, well, coming up, need to move on here. What is on your summer reading list? Are you looking for a true crime story, a romance, a thriller? Well, David's been working on a story about reading odometers. Yeah, some disagreement about this issue at the state level. We're going to talk about it on Transportation Talk. David, you recently reported on a veto from Governor Jay Inslee that would have required the state to ask drivers to volunteer their odometer readings. This is part of this long-standing effort to figure out a tax on miles traveled rather than the current gas tax that we have. Why is this veto important? Where is this issue headed? Yeah, I, I, we wrote about this because, you know, it's the, the veto itself, I think, in some ways is not huge because the policy wasn't, the policy was not, frankly, that big of a deal or that invasive because this is all voluntary, you know, uh, deal, Department of Licensing Workers are going to ask you if you wanted to volunteer your odometer readings. Not a yeah. huge, huge deal, but symbolically, it struck me as interesting because um, what the governor is, because as you mentioned, that these this was the sort of first step in many towards basically, you know, replacing the gas tax. What the governor said in vetoing this is he, he sort of read this bill, which is, again, not a big step, but he read it as um, assuming that the state is sort of marching in the direction of actually implementing a road usage charge. And he, he didn't like that. And so I, I think this is kind of a interesting early signal from the governor's office about he's clearly not sold on a road usage charge. He, he doesn't want the legislature or the state to kind of start marching down this path um, towards inevitability of implementing it. And I think that suggests that, that maybe, you know, I think at the beginning of the session, there was some sense that this could be the beginning of actually implementing this road usage charge. And this veto basically wipes that clean, that we're sort of back to square one on, on that being the case. So, you know, it struck me as interesting because, uh, I wouldn't be surprised now if the legislature has sort of gotten the message a little bit from the governor's office and next session um, starts talking about other things that might make sense instead of a road usage charge to replace a a gas tax eventually. Yeah, because I know no Republicans voted uh, for this measure. So it was was a big Democratic push. And I guess I think, too, we're going to have a new governor coming up here in uh, in a couple of months. So I'm just trying to figure out if there's any appetite for this in the future, I suppose, because that overarching problem here, David, is that as we have more cars that run on electricity, we just, we can't rely on the gas tax as much anymore, right? Yeah, that's the theory. You know, the, it hasn't, um, revenue from the gas tax is still, is still going up. Um, it's not going up Mm. as quickly as they had forecast. And, you know, I think that's because population in the state is still going up, but the cars are getting more efficient. So, um, the state is, I, I think part of what's driving this is, state is not crisis mode yet on this. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's a lot of fear about how difficult, you know, the gas tax is the easiest tax in the world to implement. It's just you make it right into the price. It's yep. basically zero administrative cost. There's no way to cheat it unless you just are stealing gas. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And right. so, um, whereas the road usage charge is very complicated, it takes a lot of administrative work to implement. Um, and I think that's spooking some people. And so the combination of that there's maybe not as much urgency to replace the gas tax as some had previously predicted, combined with now you've got a governor who's clearly a little skeptical of it. Um, you know, I think I think the veto is interesting in that it is perhaps uh, 
a, a significant, not the final nail, but a nail in, in the coffin of the road usage charge. Interesting. Well, we'll see what happens next with that one. I, that's a, a super interesting topic that's going to be going years into the future here, but we do need to wrap up. David, a call on your gardening skills. I just wanted to lay this out here. I caved in last weekend, planted tomatoes, only to see a pretty big dump of rain and colder temperatures right after that in West Seattle, at least on Sunday and Monday. Did I blow it? Talk me through it. Where am I at here? No, I don't think you blew it uh, because it was so hot there for a while. In some ways, what matters the most is the temperature of your soil. Uh, so the, the tomato might look the tomato might look a little unhappy for a couple days or maybe even a couple weeks, but it'll bounce back. They're, awesome. Tomatoes are more resilient than people give them credit for. I like it. I like it. I'm, I'm feeling resilient already, David. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks also to everybody listening out there to Seattle News Views and Brews, where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics. This podcast is on Apple, Spotify, wherever you might like to listen. Please find Seattle News Views and Brews on Patreon. Show your support. Thanks also for watching on Converge Media as well. We'll see you next time. Seattle News Views and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2023.